0: right turn with me to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 and for the reverence of the reading of God's Word I would ask everyone to stand up Romans chapter 8 just follow along with me as I read verses 35 to 39 Romans 8 35 to 39 again just follow along who shall separate us from the love of Christ which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that you have given me. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit. Uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would preach, uh, help me preach what you would want me to preach. I pray, Lord, that you would bless through this message, Lord, that you would, uh, that I, should, I would show all, my, uh, my, all my glory and worship towards you, Lord, after this message, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. amen. The society and the world we live in, over time, has developed a misconstrued definition and understanding of what true love is. And this dangerous mentality has seeped into the Christian circles today. Ever since the rise of social media, the definition of love has become diluted over time. And I, I don't need scientists to tell me this, I know from personal observation, looking at social media, I see how wrong love is portrayed in our world, in our societies today. I see the, the love that is being spread around and promoted in our world today is not, a, not that of the biblical love, it's that of love that is founded and rooted on sensual desires and feelings. And letting our feelings rule over our actions. That's what the world believes what love is today. There was even a term, I don't know when it originated, but it was a term called love wins and it was used predominantly by the LGBTQ community to kind of justify their actions, justify their sinful relationships and and trying to act and trying to go against the natural way that God ordained relationships to be and not just at the LGBTQ community. You look at the teenagers that we have in our high schools today, and even go lower than that. Even the children in our elementary schools have this false sense of what love is. Like, you'll see 12-year-old, 11-years-old, claiming that they have experienced what true love is already in their lives just because they dated somebody in second grade. That is not what true love is. Love isn't just feelings. Love isn't just your sensual desires. And there are some in our world who oppose the idea of love altogether. They don't believe the idea that there is such thing as love, they're against marriage, and they don't think that you can possibly actually fall in love in this world. And with so many false philosophies, with so many dangerous mentalities in this world regarding love, how is an individual supposed to know what true love really is? And as Christians, we we are fortunate to know that the answer is found in our Bible and through our relationship with our God. Sitting here tonight, have you personally, this is personally, have you ever experienced God's true love for yourself? Or have you fallen into the trap of believing this world's false and shallow definition of it? Tonight, let's observe three qualities that describe God's true love. The first point I have here tonight is God's love is enduring. God's love is enduring. In BCBC, I've been, it's my third year of my first semester, uh, third year for, yeah, whatever. In BCBC, I've had the privilege of taking multiple classes ranging, uh, and it was very diverse. There's a diverse amount of classes that I've taken in BCBC, and they've all, each individually had a part in, in my walk with God. But the specific class I want to bring into view right now is the class I had with Brother AJ. And it was on the, the, the topic of minor prophets. Uh, growing up, I never really knew much and were never, was never really taught much on the, 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 the minor prophets. The, the only sermon that I would hear from the minor prophets is that odd sermon from about Jonah, and not really anything about the other 11, not, nothing. So I was really excited to take the Minor Prophets class with Brother AJ. And after finishing the course, I, I, had, I grew uh, in my walk with God, and I had developed this great appreciation for these 12 books. But among those 12 books, there's one that really stuck to my mind above the rest. And they're all great, but um, I share this actually with Brother Tushan. We both love the book of Hosea. And Hosea was, had a unique command from God, and God commanded him to marry a man of, of whoredom. In other words, uh, God commanded, essentially commanded uh, Hosea to marry a harlot. Hosea obeyed, he followed God, and married a woman named Gomer. And we all know the story. He bear, And then he eventually bare three children with Gomer. But even after their marriage, even after they made a vow to, together, Gomer continued her harlotry. She kept going back. It says she kept running back to her lovers, running back to her past people that she, that she uh, loved. And instead of being faithful to Hosea, Gomer just keep, kept running, running off and continuing her harlotry. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Hosea? I mean, the emotions that Hosea was feeling aren't explicitly written in, in the book of Hosea. But Hosea was just a man. He, also, he too also had human emotions just like us. I could, I could imagine that Hosea was feeling great distress, great sadness that her, his own wife is running back to her lovers and is not faithful to him. I could just imagine the tears that he may have shed. He might have been the laughingstock of his town. For all I know, men would mock him for, for even loving a harlot. And I can imagine his three children that he had to, that he had to essentially raise by his lonesome, asking questions where mom is, dad, where is mom? I, I, we barely see her, where, where, why, why isn't she here with us? Children at their very nation are inquisitive. They like to poke and prod until they get the answers to their questions. And I can just imagine Hosea's children uh, kept nagging Hosea about where her mom was. And I could imagine how difficult it was for Hosea to try to tell this to, her, to his children. But Hosea didn't give up he kept pursuing Gomer even though Gomer was just running toward her personal lovers Hosea loved Gomer and he was willing to suffer heartache after heartache just so he could gain his wife back and the world might look at this story and they would laugh they would say Hosea, why would you continue to be with uh, Gomer? Just leave her. Just do a divorce. Just run away. You don't need to keep chasing after her and pursuing after her. Just leave. You're just causing yourself more trouble. That's what the world will think. That's what the world will say about the story of Hosea. But he didn't give up. God commanded Hosea to marry a woman out of whoredom. This is the reason why this is story special to me. God commanded Hosea to marry a woman out of whoredom to illustrate a nation that was committing great whoredom in the sight of God. The the whole story in Hosea 1-2 says, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. The whole story of Hosea and Gomer was to illustrate the relationship Israel had with God. Israel, even though God has provided for them, God led them in the wilderness, God has uh, gave them provisions, uh, sustained that nation of Israel, protected them from the enemies. Israel, time and time again, when they had the slightest opportunity, would turn away from God. They continually kept falling to the sin of idolatry and other sins. They kept disobeying God, ignoring everything that God has done for them. But despite all this, as illustrated by the, by the story of Hosea and Gomer, god endured all the transgressions of israel continued to love them despite of all their faults and this story not only applies to the nation of israel but also to us today to the christian today nobody in this world is ever going to attain perfection no one is even close to attaining perfection even the greatest christian will fall into sin daily we can justify all we want, but the little sins we commit—those little sins that that may not look like much to the world—those little sins that we commit, the sin that we like to indulge ourselves in, the sins we lovingly do, the sins we unknowingly commit—even all of those sins hurt God. Looking at myself, I've always been—I've—I've I've always been. Someone asked me one time, "Who, if I was to pick a Bible character, who would I?" Uh, Who would I be? Basically, that's what they would uh, would ask. And looking at myself, I've always found myself to relate to uh, Peter of the disciples. And just like Peter, I run my mouth without even thinking. I'm impulsive. And many times I put myself as the highest priority. You saw that in how how Peter denied Christ three times, how Peter lobbed that guard's ear off, how Peter uh, just trying to get in the way of Jesus' and God's plan. And I relate to that and on top of every other flaw in my life and on top of all the sins I commit and struggle with. But despite how much we mess up, despite how much I mess up, God's love for us will always endure. Amen. C.S. Lewis once said, though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. That though our feelings come and go this exactly describe what this world's definition of love is. It's unstable as water because at any time our feelings toward a person can just be crumpled and de- be destroyed in a twinkling of, in just one second. But God is immutable. Hebrews 13:8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. How He loved Israel back then, how He loved the saints of the New Testament back then, that's how much He loves us today. He never changes in who He is. God will never stop loving His children. Just like that father of that prodigal son, that prodigal son thought that when he would return home that his father would be mad and, and, and annoyed that he would come home and that he, would, that he wouldn't accept him. But the moment he came home, the father of that prodigal son gladly received us, gladly received him back. And just like us, no matter how many times we mess up, Jesus, God and Jesus will gladly receive us back into the fold. True love endures my second point here is God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. John three sixteen. Everyone knows the verse. For God so loved the world. In my hermeneutics class, uh, in my hermeneutics class last semester, Brother Adrian gave us a little assignment. It was a group assignment, and he told us to. Find a hundred different observations that we can make just reading John 3.16. And the whole class, the moment he said, a hundred observations in one single verse, is that even possible? But we kept working at it. We kept, we kept working together to find those a hundred observations. And we eventually got a hundred observations, and I was thoroughly surprised. Well, obviously, our observations range from shallow ones. Uh, I think there was a student who just who, who kept putting... Uh, John 3.16 has so-and-so many amount of letters. John 3.16 has so-and-so amount of words. But we also made some nice doctrinal observations that we found in John 3.16. But one of these observations is the one I just said, for God so loved the world. This, the fact that God loves everyone. This was one of the verses I learned as a child, and, and many others are the same. This is one of the first verses that they learned. Uh, it's a very popular verse, and we know it contains the gospel message. We know that it's, it's a very good message to sh- when we, we're soul winning. But if you dissect it further, you'll learn a great truth about God's true love, and that is that God's love is unconditional. God loved the world. He didn't pick and choose who he wanted to love. God didn't have this Long, extended, winding screening process to see who would qualify for his love. Just recently, for my birthday, my, my parents wanted to, to get me something special for my 20th birthday. And so it was meant to be a surprise. But one day, once when my dad came home, he nonchalantly, he nonchalantly asked me, Ivan, laptop or dog? And I don't have to be a rocket scientist to interpret what that meant. He didn't even try to hide the fact. But obviously, if I was asked that question 100 times, I would choose dog 100 times. The days preceding, me and my parents started searching all over Kijiji. We looked up all sorts of pet rescues. We looked at Craigslist. We looked at Facebook groups. And we were looking to adopt a dog. I didn't want to buy a dog. I wanted to adopt a dog. But little did I realize there's a complicated screening process. For adopting a dog, they they ask everything about you, like how much you work, how how many times, how many hours are you away from home, uh, are you an active, or are you lazy, and they ask a bunch of questions. It, it took me about about honestly f- about close to 45 minutes to finish page one, and then my mom told me to restart because I put the wrong information. But anyways, <laughs> that's when I found out how extensive adoption was. But God doesn't. God doesn't have such an extensive screening process when it comes to pe- who qualifies for His love. God loves unconditionally, God loves everyone. For God so loved the world. God is love. And this, is, this might be imp- hard to comprehend. When, when we were studying the, the, the theology and the attributes of God, it, some of the things that uh, Pastor Hoxie was teaching, I just couldn't comprehend. God is love and it is one of His holy attributes. It's hard to imagine and comprehend, but God, because of his very nature, is incapable. He is incapable of not loving. Going back to the first point, no matter how much we may have sinned, God will still love us. No matter how much, even, not, just, not just the saved, but even if an uh, unsaved, like an atheist, no matter how much that atheist blasphemes and, and mocks God, God will still love even that atheist. And for me, this is my personal weakness. I've shared this with my close friends. When someone slanders the name of God, I can't help but have negative emotions towards that person. I can't help but feel angry that this person is just slandering the the very God I love. But I don't have that right. I don't have that right to get angry at that person because God doesn't get angry at that person because he still loves him. God is infinitely more loving and he's unconditional in his love. This world's definition of love is very much conditional. Their mentality is, if someone doesn't treat you well, why should you love them? Only return the favor if it's given to you. That's what the world thinks. They they like to say that love is earned. But God's love isn't earned because ever since the creation of man, he has loved each and every single person that has ever lived. God's love is unconditional and we ought to show the same towards other people. My last point is, God's love is unbreakable. Romans 8:35 poses a, a, a wonderful question: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness or peril or sword? And Paul answers this in verses 38 to 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You look at some of the strongest materials readily available in our world today, and you look, look at materials such as steel, maybe diamond, maybe Kevlar, and look, you look at other of these other dense stones, all of these are strong, but they are all susceptible to breaking, still. Even diamond, which is ranked as the seventh strongest material in the world, even diamond can still be broken. Even the number one strongest material in the world, called graphene, which is 200 times stronger than steel, it doesn't have the title of unbreakable. Science, scientists say it is practically unbreakable, but the word practically is still there. They know a way that you can destroy it molecularly. It's still breakable. And this adjective, unbreakable, is definitely not something I would describe, use to describe the de- the, this world's definition of love. There have been so many relationships that was founded on this world's mentality that have been broken just due to mere words. A simple misunderstanding, a single action caused a whole relationship to fall apart. True love won't let just small things like that ruin the whole thing. The teens I mentioned earlier who say they found love at an early age, I, I, I dare say that if you would put pressure on their relationship and, and you would test their relationships, I believe that most of those relationships will fall apart because they're not founded properly. And it's very sad that so many broken families are, are, are a result of, this, of people having this false sense of love, of these sensual desires and, and just letting their feelings guide them. So many broken families are results of that. Aren't you glad that God's love for us is unbreakable? Nothing in this physical world, nothing in the, anything in the spiritual realms, nothing will ever separate and break God's love for us. The reason why Apost- the Apostle Paul did so many great things for God because, was because he realized this very fact. Verse 38, he said, For I am persuaded, The Apostle Paul believed with his whole heart. He was persuaded of the fact that nothing will ever separate him him and God's love. And this allowed him to do things that may, may, may have been uncomfortable, may have been difficult for a normal person to do, but the fact that he knew that God's love was there waiting for him when a difficult situation will come gave him enough comfort to keep going. And if we would have that same mentality and if we were persuaded just like Apostle Paul of, of God's true love for us, then we, I believe that we would be able to do great things for God as well. Watchman Nee said this, the nature of God's love is unchangeable. Ours alternates all too readily. This world twisted the definition of love and it changes seemingly every moment that passes by. As preachers and students of the Bible, let us proclaim to the unsaved what true love really is and that this love can only be found in God. God's love is enduring. God's love is unconditional and God's love is unbreakable. If you make this truth real in your life, you will discover how much God can personally use you to accomplish great things for Him.
1: All right, Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. So from Ivan, we just heard a message about the love of God and how it's enduring, it's unbreakable, and it's unchanging. So basically, Ivan, he told us about God's love toward us. And I, I, want, I want to talk about our love toward God. So it really fit. I mean, the Lord, he arranged it that way. I mean, it, it was just, it, it fit like that. We didn't plan it, but so in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, Well, we'll start from verse 28. It says, and one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is hear, O Lord Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all, thy heart, with all, Thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all my, uh, with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. Now, the reason it's the first commandment is because it's so important. When things are placed first or placed number one, it's because there's usually a, a great importance that's that's attributed to them, and. When I talk about our, our love for God, I just wanna define that. I wanna say that our love for God is basically our view of God. It's how we view God. When we love God, we're gonna have a high view of God. So when I say love, I'm talking about a high view of God. So how we love God is how we view God. And I just wanna go through the Bible. And I just wanna go through a couple of different characters and I wanna illustrate this fact. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah and chapter six. So in Isaiah chapter 6, it's a very common passage. Most of us know it. But before Isaiah chapter 6 happened, there was Isaiah chapter 1. And in Isaiah chapter 1, it says, And the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So here we have Isaiah. Isaiah, he gets a vision from the Lord. You see, he, he gets a burden from the Lord. He gets a message from the Lord. And Isaiah, he goes and he starts preaching the message that God has given him. He, the, the Lord gave him a burden. The Lord gave him a vision. The Lord gave Isaiah a passion. And so Isaiah, he sets out. And in chapter one, you know, Isaiah might have been a little bit nervous. He might not have been used to this. He starts out and he says, in verse four, he says, ah, sinful nation. He starts out like that. He may have been nervous, but, but Isaiah is preaching. He's, he, he's, God is his, his, his giving him a message. He's giving him a vision. And Isaiah, he takes this vision. And through chapter 1, Isaiah is preaching this vision. He's, 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 he's uh, revealing what God has given him. And chapter 2 comes. And Isaiah, he gets a little bit more bold. He gets a little bit more uh, zealous, a little bit more energy in his message. And he keeps, he keeps preaching. And then chapter 3 happens. It's the same thing. God's giving him a message. He's preaching his message. And then chapter 4 happens. And then by chapter 5, Isaiah, he's rolling. You know, he he, he might have got more bold. He might have got more zeal. God has given him a message. And Isaiah, he's starting to preach the message that God has given him. And in chapter 5, we can see that uh, Isaiah, you know, he begins. And he says in chapter 8, he says, woe unto them. That's how he starts his message. He says, woe to them. To them. That's how we start. That's verse 8. And then as we move along to verse 11, Isaiah, he's going. He's bold. He says, woe to them. Isaiah says, woe to them. What are they doing? They're sinning. He says, woe. Woe is, 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 is a word of, of, of surprise. It's a word of of. of of, of shock. He, he, he's in shock at the sin of Israel. He's in shock at what they're doing. He says, woe to them. And usually when stuff is repeated in the Bible, it's, it's, it's important. It's trying to emphasize the facts. So Isaiah, he, he, he said, woe to them in verse 8. And in verse 11, he says, woe to them. So the sin of Israel, it's strong. The sin of Israel, they're, they're, they're doing major sin. They're doing bad things. And Isaiah, he doesn't stop there. He keeps preaching the message that God has given him. And in verse 18, he says, woe on to them. This is three times Isaiah he said it. He said woe to them. Isaiah says woe to them. That's the third time and he's not done there yet. And in verse 20, he says, woe to, woe unto them. And in verse 21, he says, woe unto them. And in verse 22, Isaiah says, woe unto them. You see, Isaiah, he's preaching a message. He sees that Israel is sinning. He has a burden. The Lord has given him a burden. He sees that they're going the wrong way. And Isaiah, he's trying to stop them. He's trying to say, woe. He's trying to say, stop your sin. It's destroying you. Don't do that. And he's preaching the message that God has given him. But then chapter six happens and the message completely changes, you see. In chapter six in verse one, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. You see something happened here. Isaiah, his message completely changed. Before, he saw the sin of Israel. He saw what they were doing. He was preaching the message that God has given them. He was saying, woe unto them. But then Isaiah, he saw God. He saw God high and lifted up. Isaiah, he got a high view of God. He saw God in his rightful place. And we know what happened. And in verse 5, Isaiah, he changed this message from woe unto them. And he said, woe unto them. Is me. You see, when Isaiah, he caught a vision of God, he caught a high view of God, his message changed from, whoa, I can't believe their sin, I can't believe what they're doing, they're sinning, they're turning away from God, they're running from God, and his message switched, his message changed inward, he looked at himself, he saw himself the way God wanted him, the way God wanted, to, the way God wanted him to see him, he saw his own sin, Isaiah saw that, in the sight of God, he was sinful, he wasn 't right before God, he wasn 't living the way that God wanted him to, and he said, "Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of, an un- of a people, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You see what happened here? it doesn 't matter. You know, whether we do the right thing. We can do all the right things. We can have a Bible. We can we can share the gospel. We can preach the gospel. We can uh, take the gospel. We can uh, uh, do all the right things. We can read our Bible. We can try to pray. But if we don't have a high view of God, if we don't have God in his right place, we're not doing what God wants us to do. We're not right before the Lord. You see, Isaiah, he was doing all the right things. He was preaching the message that God wanted him to preach. But when he saw God high and he saw God, lifted up, he realized that he had to do better. What he was doing wasn't good enough. His sin wasn't right before God. And he said, woe is me. You see, Isaiah, he realized that first commandment that that, that God, or that, that Jesus was trying to say, he realized that that. He needed to have a high view of God. He needed to love God with all his his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, and with all his strength. And for a second example, uh, we can turn to the book of Job. In Job chapter one, we know this story, most of us. We know the story. And this is the way I envision the story. I like to just imagine it. A little more. So, the way I envision it, I imagine Job, you know, he's, he's just woken up. Uh, yesterday was a great day. It was a good day. Uh, everything was going great. Uh, his wife is woken up too, and everything is going well. And they go downstairs. Maybe they pull out the newspaper or they're trying to read the news and they grab a drink for themselves. And they're just sitting there and they're just chatting. And then all of a sudden, they hear a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. And Job says, this is great. All right, so he goes to the door, and he answers it. And at the door, there's a man, and he says, "Joe, you're probably going to want to sit down. And <laughs> Job says, what's going on? Just, just come on in, officer. There's, there's nothing wrong. And the officer says, no, Joe, you're probably going to want to sit down for this. Joe, he doesn't know what's happening, but he, he goes in, and he, he sits down, and... The officer says, Job, your kids, the, the bus they were headed on, it was involved in a, in a head-on collision. And everyone on that bus died. No one survived. Job, Job says, what? He, he can't believe it. He's gotta collect his thoughts a little bit. And, and as Job's thinking and he's, he's, he's processing this, again, another knock at the door. and He's, he's still trying to process what happens to his kids. He goes to the door and he answers it and there's another man at the door. The man looks in, he sees the police officer. He sees Job distraught, sad, he scratches his head. He says, Job, you're you're, you're gonna wanna sit down. And Job doesn't know what to do so he walks back and he he sits down and then the man tells him, Job, all your money, your, your savings, the guy you trusted with your money, he, he, he ran off with it, all of it. You have got nothing, absolutely nothing. And then, again, it hits Job. Job is distraught, he doesn't know how to process this. And just as he's, he's thinking, and then another knock at the door, and Job, as he stays sitting, one of the men goes, they answer the door. It's someone else in a suit. And They look inside, they see two others there, and he walks in. He says, "Job, I've got, I've got bad news." He says, "Your business, that 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 you own, that you ran, it exploded. There's nothing left. I mean, we, we, insurance can't cover it. Job, you've got nothing." And as Job is hit with bad news after bad news after bad news, and he's distraught, something incredible happened, Something amazing. You see, Job. He, in chapter 1 and verse 20, it says that Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshiped the Lord. That's incredible. You see, Job, he had such a high view of God. That, that's incredible. Job was hit with bad news after bad news after bad news. And the first thing that he did was... He went and he worshiped the Lord. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But there was someone else there. See, they went through the exact same thing that Job did as those guys. They came in one after the other and they heard the news, but they didn't worship. They didn't bow down. They didn't say, they didn't try and give God the glory. It was Job's wife. I'm sure you know this. We, we see her later in the chapter, but this is, this is how I imagine. I imagine Job, he's, he's sitting there. Job has a, has a high view of God. God is first in Job's life. Job says, I don't understand what's happening. But he bows down and he says, God, I just want to give you all the glory. But over here, Job's wife, they're, 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 they're in the same house. They just went through the exact same thing, but a completely different reaction. You see, Job's wife, she didn't praise the Lord. She didn't bow down in worship. Instead, later in the chapter, we found out. She says, "Job, just curse God or die. Just, just curse God. I can't believe this is happening to us. What did we do? We didn't do anything. You see, she had a low view of God. I mean, these are incredible things. This is, this is, this is, this is heart-breaking stuff that has happened here, but two completely different reactions. And then... Uh, one more, my last example is, is Moses. See, Moses, he was tasked with an impossible job. He was given the job of taking the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, even Moses himself, he said, God, I, ca- I can't do this. You know, I'm, 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 just, I'm just a normal man. I, I can't do this. So God says, okay. And God sends Aaron to him. And then there's, there's Moses and there's Aaron. And I just want to show you again that everything that Moses went through, Aaron went through. Aaron, he was the mouthpiece of Moses because Moses, he didn't want to speak. So Aaron, he spoke for Moses. So God told Moses what to say. Then Moses told Aaron what to say. So everything that Moses went through, Aaron went through, you see? Moses, he was, um, Aaron, he was there when Moses threw down the snake and the snake, or oh, threw down the rod and the rod became a snake. Aaron saw that miracle. Aaron was there when Moses stuck the, his, his leprous hand into the jacket. He pulled it out and it became leprous. Aaron was there. And Aaron was also there for the 10 plagues. Aaron, he saw the blood. He saw the flies. He saw the locusts. He saw the darkness. He saw the frogs. He saw the incredible things that God was doing. And then after that, Aaron was there when they were crossing the Red Sea. He saw Moses step into the water and the water's part. Aaron, he was right there with Moses. If anybody should have had a high view of God, it should have been Aaron. He was right there. Moses was doing miracles, and Aaron, he was doing miracles right with Moses. His view of God should have been so high. He should have... He should have trusted God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. He should have loved God. His view of God should have been so high. But you know what happened? Moses, he goes off into the mountain to meet with God and to talk with God and to communicate with God. And then there's Aaron back here in the camp and with all the Israelites and Aaron didn't know what to do, and all of a sudden, the Israelite leaders, they came up to him, and they said, Aaron, we've got this great idea. You see, Moses, he's gone, and Moses is Moses, but Aaron, you're the man. What if we just make this golden calf? We can worship it as the God that led us out of Egypt. And Aaron, instead of saying, no, we serve a greater God than some golden calf. Aaron, he just says, <laughs> that's a great idea. And he says, bring all your earrings. Let's make this great golden calf and let's worship it. And Aaron, he, he, he led the people into sin. And it was so bad that when, um, when Moses came down and he threw the Ten Commandments at, uh, at, at the golden calf, God said in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and I think it was verse 9, God says he was angry with Aaron and he wanted to destroy Aaron. You see, if anybody should have had a high view of God, it should have been Aaron. If anybody should have loved God so much and knew that God was able to do incredible things, it should have been Aaron. But Aaron, he didn't have a high view of God. He didn't love God the way that Moses loved God. And I just want to conclude with this. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. So we read in Matthew in chapter 1, or chapter 12 and verse 30 that uh, that, that, that love for God is, is, that we have to love God with all our soul, with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and so we see where those commandments come from. It, it, the first uh, commandment that Jesus was talking about, it comes from these commandments. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me now. These days, you know, we don't usually go out and we don't make, you know, we don't, we don't go out and buy golden statues and we don't bow down to them. We have, we have different gods. We have different idols that we place into our hearts. You see, basically, a, a god or, or an idol is anything that we put before God or, or anything that we do that, that, that is, is before God. You see, if, when we put anything before God, we're lowering our view of God. We're saying, God, we don't, we don't love you that much. God, we don't, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not I'm not gonna trust you that much. And then it goes on and it says, Thou shalt not take unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them. Again, we don't, we don't bow down to golden idols and golden statues today. Instead, we bow down to different things. We bow down to materialism or, 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 or just whatever, just anything that we put before God. And this is why... Jesus said that these are the, the, the greatest commandments, you see, because these determine our view of God. And our, our view of God is, is, is in relation to our love for God. I, I described it as our love for God is how we view God. When we have a high view of God, we're going to keep God first. And I just want to close with that. I just want to say that, that seeing isn't believing. You know, sometimes we, we, we might ask God for a sign, you know, when we're not... Uh, when, 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 when we're going through tough times, we might ask God for a sign. We might ask God to show us something. But, you know, we see from, from Aaron's life that, that asking for, uh, uh, that, that, that signs don't equal believing. If anybody should have believed because of signs, it should have been Aaron. He saw sign after sign after sign that God was in control and he was powerful. But it didn't work. So we have to love God and keep a high view of God.